Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their articles. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy our podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $50 for print plus online. For many years we've heard about Helen Garner's diaries and now we have a chance to sample them in successive, artfully edited volumes. The first was Yellow Notebook, which I reviewed in the November 2019 issue of ABR. Nicholas Jose reviewed the second volume, One Day I'll Remember This, in the December 2020 issue. The third volume, How to End a Story, covers the conclusion of Garner's third marriage to a certain other writer known as V. Lisa Gorton reviews it in the January-February issue of ABR, and we invited her to record it for the ABR podcast. Lisa began writing for ABR 20 years ago, and she's a former board member and poetry editor of the magazine. She studied at the universities of Melbourne and Oxford, where she completed a master's in Renaissance literature and a doctorate on John Donne. Her first poetry collection, Press Release, in 2007, won the Victorian Premier's Prize for Poetry. Two further collections have followed, Hotel Hyperion and Empirical. Her novel, The Life of Houses, also published by Giramondo, shared the 2016 Prime Minister's Award for Fiction. Lisa Gorton. The first two volumes of Helen Garner's diaries, Yellow Notebook and One Day I'll Remember This, cover eight years apiece. This one covers three. How to End a Story is an intense, even claustrophobic story of the breakup of a marriage told in the incidental, fragmentary form of a diary. In an earlier volume, Garner wrote, I would like to write about dominance, revulsion, separation, the horrible struggles between people who love each other. And later, a dream, some kind of dark, dumb attraction between V and me. Now, here it is, a story of the struggles between people who love each other and their slow waking out of it. How to End a Story starts just after the publication of Garner's book, The First Stone, a book that she started writing at about the time that she started on the relationship with V. A lot of the entries in How to End a Story reflect, one way or another, on the trouble between women and men. Even seemingly digressive parts of the story reflect back on the question. She and a friend visit the new Armani store. They compare its clothes for women with its clothes for men. They prefer the latter. She is told that her haircut is too short. She calls it blokish. Her daughter gets married. She remembers how her father thwarted her first wedding. She visits her parents. When her father leaves the room, he turns out the light, leaving his wife and daughter in the dark. She and V pass a couple fighting in the street. Passing that place the next day, V says, I wonder what happened to that bloke. 
she quotes Proust on jealousy, Richard Ford from Women with Men. In a conversation with Bernadette Brennan, Gana set out a rule for publishing her diaries. All I'm going to give myself permission to do is to cut and fill it and chop out bits. These entries are selected, cut, filleted, chopped out, with an eye for what it is to break with someone after years. In its obsessiveness, how to end a story captures how the single self has to be extricated painfully, piece by piece, from shared habits, friendships, places, stories, memories, things. V is an almost comical figure here, falling somewhere between Casaubon in Middlemarch and Robert in the diary of a provincial lady. V says that women's writing lacks an overarching philosophy. Bloody fussy women, he says. Stupid, cliche-ridden, impertinent, presumptuous, offensive women. I'm like an ocean liner, he says, levelly forging along. And you're a smaller boat that swerves and flitters here and there. A bright little thing. I know this mightn't sound very good, he said. But why do you imagine that anyone would be interested in reading your diary? This characterization of V makes How to End a Story about something more than the question of one particular marriage. It becomes a different question. What compels a woman to stay with a man such as this? She herself comes to see the relationship in terms of a classic position. I think I am in the classic position of a woman artist who, in order to maintain a marriage, is obliged to trim herself so as not to make her husband feel... What? Reading this diary, you can sense in its background foundational works of feminist writing. About jealousy and trying to live with it, Simone de Beauvoir's novel, She Came to Stay. About the search for her own living space, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. About accommodating a sexist man, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Beauvoir wrote, the oppressor would not be so strong if he did not have accomplices among the oppressed. H writes, I wanted so much to be loved that I tried to turn myself into the sort of woman I thought I would have to be. I connived, I enabled, and I allowed him to set hard into worse versions of the misogyny he already felt. It is as though H requires herself to test the truths of this long tradition against her own nerve ends. In 2009, says Brennan, Ghana read an ABR review by Vivian Gaston of two books by artists' wives. In her journal, she wrote, a slightly sickened sense of recognition slithers through me, the serving the self-abasement, or at least abnegation, the attempts to rationalise the man's egotistical demands and serene sense of entitlement, and the wife's subservience to these. But she had guessed it from the first. Dread. He too will turn out to be manly in that way. Looked after by a woman. No longer alive to her 
yet still drawing full benefits from her. Is there hope for women and men? The first two volumes of Gaina's diaries offer, as one of their chief pleasures, the feeling of time as it passes. They are full of small occasions, glancing insights, a slowly accumulating drift of actions and consequences. This one is different. This one is as compelling as a detective story. This one is edited with the sense of an ending. One of the pleasures of detective stories is how they transform all their incidental detail into what might be evidence. In How to End a Story, H is asking herself questions that have the same sort of effect. Is he having an affair? Should she stay with this man? Or move out, get a room of her own? The reader, questions in mind, starts looking for evidence. The reader is privy to intimate details. The reader is watching for clues. The reader can see what's coming. The reader can judge. How to End a Story is alive with the sort of daily events and details that are companionable in writing. Always, there is the straightforward pleasure of Garner's prose. But this diary's sense of an ending changes the way in which it's read. For one thing, it gives symbolic force to certain ordinary things. Her shopping bags, for instance. H's husband, V, being a male genius, needs H out of the apartment all day. She goes to her rented office. She returns, weighed down with bags, to cook the dinner. Elaine Badieu, writing on Samuel Beckett, defines four figures generic of everything that can happen to a member of humankind. The first is to wander in the dark with a bag. It is a diary. These were real shopping bags. Still, for a reader, these shopping bags come to signify what H has to lug about, bring back to the place, empty out to make into something nurturing. Badieu, the two figures of solitude are to wander in the dark with one's bag, and to be immobile because one has been abandoned. The memory of these shopping bags gives extra charge to the shopping bag that V stores at the end in his workroom for X, the painter. There are symbols in writing because there are symbols in life. These are two writers breaking up. It makes sense then that the facts which have symbolic force in this record of their breakup, find symbolic expression in literature. As in Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Purloined Letter, much depends upon a letter hiding in plain sight. Later, a blue straw Armani hat becomes the fetish object of H's magnificent rage. In a writing life, Brennan notes how, after the breakup, in a room of her own, Gunner wrote a 12-page narrative poem in rhyming couplets called The Hat in the Flat. In How to End a Story, H writes about her experience of therapy, and this too brings in questions about how symbols work in life. The therapist sits behind H's shoulder, where she can't be seen. She said that I'm in competition with her, interpreting my own dreams. The therapist translates symbols. I think, she said, 
that the house is you, the dark part of yourself. But that dark is metaphorical. The body and the self and its symbols can hardly be separated. There are a lot of dreams in How to End a Story, as though in recording these, Ghana is again worrying at the question of how dreams and symbols and fictions work in with ongoing life. H quotes Don DeLillo. We stand around, look out the window, walk down the hall, come back to the page, and in those intervals something subterranean is forming, a literal dream. Except, it seems, that Ghana doesn't want the dream on its own, self-enclosed and self-sufficient. She wants to include the ground on which that literal dream was formed, the standing around, the looking out the window, the walking down the hall, the coming back to the page. How to End a Story is working at what Ghana calls the crossover between fiction and an account of what happened. Truman Capote, in an interview published in Conversations with Capote by Lawrence Grobel in 1985, foresaw the conjunction of fiction and non-fiction. He said, I think the two things are coming into conjunction like two great rivers. Fiction and non-fiction, yes, they're coming into a conjunction divided by an island that is getting more and more narrow. The two rivers are going to suddenly flow together once and for all and forever. You see it more and more in writing. Do you think that Joyce and Proust took writing as far as it could go? Oh, no, I don't at all. There is a route for fiction, but I think it's going to have to involve more and more what it is that I'm trying to do, which is to make truth into fiction or fiction into truth. I don't know what it is. Capote kept a journal too, he said. I do dialogue and description. In my journal, I have my special list of truly despicable people. It's run now to something over 4,000 names. Truth into fiction or fiction into truth. H says, maybe my right place to work is down a fissure between fiction and whatever the other thing is, down a crack. Because How to End a Story is a diary, in telling its story it tries to discover how stories take shape in day-by-day life through the weird interplay of accidents and habits and happenings and revelations and sometimes decisions. About writing, she wrote, meaning is in the smallest event. It doesn't have to be put there, only revealed. Along with this interplay between dreams and daily life, the diary format offers Ghana a way to make the story work through fragments. She dispenses with all the machinery of getting characters up and dressed and breakfasted and out the door and from one country to another and from one year to the next. She keeps only those events that reveal their meaning. So How to End a Story is composed with something like a novel's sense of an ending. But that is not to say that it doesn't matter whether it is fiction or whatever the other thing is. Because this is a diary, because it is true, it concentrates attention on the writer's particular way of seeing people and places and things. We can contest all of it. At times, reading this diary, you feel like a spy. At times, you feel like a friend. At times, you feel like a judge. Take the occasion when H tells someone to get fucked in a restaurant. She gets ticked off for that. The reader can judge B and the other people there, and her. 
Meanwhile, H is judging him and them and herself too. Reading some diaries, Elizabeth Bishop's translation of Helena Morley's diary, for instance, is like sitting where H's therapist sits, looking over the writer's shoulder. Reading Guyner's diaries is not like that. It is much more like talking face to face. At one point, H twists around to see her therapist, to check that she is there. In the first volume, H writes, I see that what I am doing in this diary is conducting an argument with myself. That argument makes a place for the reader. In the second volume of these diaries, H is reading Peter Hanke's notebook, The Weight of the World. She writes, he's more brutal with himself than I have ever been. He inspires me to try to be more truthful in this book. It's hard, for I am always hiding something either from myself or from the person who may or may not, today or on some future day, read this and be inclined to think less of me. That is, the reader was there all along. Imagined counterpart, spy, friend, judge, someone with a place held for them in that ongoing argument which the writing is. At the end of his love poem, They Flee From Me, Thomas Wyatt suddenly turns the poem over to the court of public opinion. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. The last line reveals that the judges have been gathered around the poem, listening from the first. Perhaps for Garner, that's the point of mixing fiction with whatever the other thing is. It makes the reader part of it. It gives the reader license to judge. Garner remarks that her story of the first stone is full of holes, for instance. She seems surprised that readers expected anything else. This is what connects Garner's diary project with her sequence of books about legal trials, an interest in the meeting of opposing views, a structure which looks for justice out of conflict. I thought of Ghana's diary when I read Annie Ernaux's brilliant memoir, A Girl's Story. I needed them to be alive, as if I needed to be writing about what is alive, to be endangered in the way one is when writing about the living, and not in the state of tranquility that prevails when people die and are consigned to the immateriality of fictional characters. There is a need to make writing an untenable enterprise, to atone for its power, not its ease. No one feels less ease in writing than me, out of an imaginary terror of consequences. Ghana, too, seems to pay for the right to speak by endangering herself to an extent that's disconcerting. Don't talk to anyone about this, will you? Normally this would enrage me, but I say I won't, I'm too ashamed. I'm ashamed of my own naivety. I'm ashamed for you. And I'm ashamed because people will say, what? She's still hanging around waiting for that jerk off? I'm not going to tell anybody about this. And I'm not. But she does. Because she needs to be writing about what is alive. To be endangered. And because answering those reiterations of shame... She takes an epigraph from Jung. 
the love problem is part of mankind's heavy toll of suffering. And nobody should be ashamed of having to pay his tribute. Thanks for listening to the ABR podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 per month for digital. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Jack Khalil and Clancy Balin, who edit the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.